Welcome to the Aurora Cornerstone Podcast. Thank you for tuning in. We hope today's message is an encouragement to you. I'm going to invite you, would you go with me to your Bibles, and we're going to turn to the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus, and there in the book of Exodus, we are going to finish a first, a second of two parts. Exodus 29. Go to Exodus chapter 29. Exodus chapter 29. God is not wanting to remain removed from his creation, from us. The prize, the treasure. He calls us chosen people. He does not want to remain distanced. He beckons us to come into his presence. How does that make you feel? <laughs> I didn't plan to ask that question. How does it make you feel for God to invite you to come close? He's not a distant God. He's not a God of wrath. Some people have grown up in a background where God was simply, you know, anytime you heard the name God mentioned, it was for him to smack you or if you did something wrong. If you did this, you're going to hell. If you did this, God will get you. And that is really unfortunate because that's not God. He identifies himself as a God of love. He invites us to come close. Problem, problem is always that there is sin that separates us from God. And the Bible says all have sinned and fallen short. We've, you, know, I, you don't have to talk to me very long where I can begin to tell you, yeah, there's, there's, you don't have to tell me I'm a sinner because there's been many things when I have fallen short of him. But he invites us to come close. And this, we are in a season here where we're talking of prayer, fasting, drawing close to God. We've been calling this, now's the time. Now's the time to draw near. Now's the time to seek his face. Now's the time to no longer be in a place of just looking after me and doing my own thing. But it's a time where in hunger I begin to seek and call on God. It requires not just a quick little moment. It really requires an, a, an about change of heart and attitude as we begin to desire God in our lives. I don't presume everybody desires that. I don't presume this morning everybody desires that. But when our hearts begun, begin to be hungry for something and we begin to question, there's got to be more than what's going on, then the invitation is seek the Lord. There is more. There is more. There's an Old Testament model that God used. He used it as an expression for his people to be able to approach him. God desired to dwell among them, and thus the tabernacle, the making of the tabernacle. He gave specific designs. You read of it in detail in the book of Exodus and Leviticus. And in this model, the tabernacle, it was meant that there were a number of steps that if you took that and the priests and the commoner that they could come to a certain point and then those that God had consecrated, set apart, would carry it the rest of the way. But that in by doing this, these steps took you, and there were seven steps that took you into the very holy of holies where God says, I will meet you there. And this is the text I have this morning for our text in Exodus 29, verse 42. For the generations to come, this burnt offering is to be made regularly at the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord. 
There I will meet you and speak to you. We have on our picture, can we go back to a, a picture here? And if you will note on the picture that, uh, i got to remember how to do this now. On our picture, there we go. On the picture here, this is the tabernacle. I know those who are watching live stream can't pick this up, but I'm just looking at the picture here of the tabernacle with all the tents around it. And you have the fire that comes down, and that's over top of what was described as the Holy of Holies, where the holy place, and that's where God would meet with them. But there was an entry point. started at the entry of a gate. That gate right there is a gate that would be taking over on this one to the right, the model to the right. It's over to the right. There's a gate that brings you to the outer court. And then you come into the... Today we're going to be talking of this inner court. And you will be coming into this inner court. The inner court was had three pieces of furniture. And I'm just using this so you know where they are. There's the first one we're going to be looking at, the second we're going to be looking at, and the third we're going to be looking at, and then behind this veil is the Ark of the Covenant. Okay, so that's the picture. Chapter over chapter over chapter talks about this. Why is that important for us? Why are you going through this? That's Old Testament. Well, in the time of David, they made a temple. It was permanent. The tabernacle was meant to be moved, but the temple was permanent, and the city of Zion, the capital city. And in Jerusalem, this temple was the same picture of your entry. You still had to approach God. There was still separation between man and God. You had to go by way of the seven steps. Now, when Jesus came, he abolished the process of the temple tabernacle, but instead he called us now because his Holy Spirit can dwell inside us. Those who call on him and are children of God we are, the temple. we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. He now abides in us. But we still must approach God. There's still step by step. How do I get to the place where I experience God in his glory and in his holiness? Most of us, I'm going to suggest all of us will admit, there are many times we don't feel God or experience him. You know by fact, if you are a child of God through your confession of your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you your sin. You know you are a child of God, but you don't sense his closeness. I want to suggest this is an act of prayer, and this is my primary as a, as a Wayne. I use this all the time as consciously a process when I begin to call on him, when I begin to go to prayer. Not every time. But there won't be a week go by where I won't use this because I just methodically want to make sure that there are some things in my life that he's pointing out and sometimes I just want to bypass them and I expect to be with him and just we just kind of jolly together. But it just doesn't work that way. There's some things that hinder. This was meant to be a pattern. He describes this, that this was meant last week, we said, as an illustration for today. So learn these seven steps and I think you'll just find it quite liberating in your faith as you approach God in prayer. Last week, we talked, first of all, of the front gate. The front gate is gate beautiful, and the gate beautiful is beautiful. Gate beautiful last week, by reference of illustration, had four colors on it. There's only one gate. Jesus said, there is one way to the Father. I am the door. I am the door. There's no other door, one door. And there were four colors. And the four colors of the door really spoke of the coming king who would be Jesus. The four colors of the door, first of all, was white, speaks of purity, and that Jesus is the spotless lamb of God. He is white. He is the spotless lamb of God. We're not, he is. 
but the door had the color blue on it. Blue represent heavenly color. And blue represented that he is from the Father. He is divine. He is deity. The Bible refers in the New Testament, he is the Son of God. Holy is he. But the third color on the door was purple, which speaks of royalty. He's not only the Son of God, fully divine, but he is from the line of David, from back to Abraham. You can follow the lineage, and he is from the line of royalty, spoken would come the anointed one, would come the Messiah, royalty. So he's the son of God, he's the son of man. That's why they made reference to two. The son of God, deity, son of man, royalty. He fulfilled all the requirements for the Messiahship. And the last color was the color red. Because he would go to the cross and blood, his blood, precious, spotless lamb of God, lamb of God, son of God, son of man, his blood was shed. And therefore, my sins, my debt is paid. He took my sin upon him. Lori was talking that in Awanas this past week, the children were learning that scripture verse that in, I think it was John 3, 14, even as Moses was lifted up, even as Moses, even as the servant was lifted up in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And it talked about that there was a serpent that was placed up in Numbers chapter 14 or something where a serpent was placed on a pole in the Old Testament, and they would look upon that serpent. Well, why did they? Why a serpent? Isn't that a depictive of, of the devil? But recognize that it was the serpent in the garden that was a part of the fall of man. The picture of a serpent lifting up, and it was poisonous, and the people were dying at that time. But it was a picture that Christ, when he went to the cross, he took on, he became sin. When God looked on the cross, when Christ was on Calvary, he did not see the spotless Son of God. He saw all of our sin. He saw the serpent. What a picture of the Old Testament. He, but Jesus, he took on my sin. He could only do that because he was spotless. He shed his blood. Beautiful picture. Through, the first gate is salvation. Salvation. And then you would come to the place with your lamb and you would come to the brazen altar talked last week, the brazen altar, four horns on the altar. You would tie off your lamb. And before the priest at the altar, you would confess your sins. Then the priest would slit the throat on your behalf. Death on your behalf. A penalty was paid. And that lamb's throat was slit. The sacrifice was on your behalf. Then the lamb was placed upon. It was called the burnt offering. And the carcass was burnt. What wretched smell it would have been. Burnt on the offering. Your sins have been cast away. No longer are you a slave to sin. You are not a slave to your flesh. You're free. Paul would talk about, I'm not a slave to flesh. I'm a slave to Jesus. Burnt. And then you are consecrated for service. This altar is a place of forgiveness. It's where you find forgiveness. You go from the gate of salvation to the altar of forgiveness. God, forgive me. Forgive me. And then you move after consecration to the next place is yieldedness. You go to a laver. It's a wash basin. It's a place of yield. You must now yield. And the laver is made out of the mirrors of the women that brought the mirrors from Egypt. And it speaks of your vanity. It speaks of all your pride. But the washing, as Ephesians chapter 5, 26 says, we are washed by the word of God. His word washes us. 
And as you and I today, as we dig into the word, his word is meant to wash us. Don't go quickly through here. You know, as a child, when I was told to wash my hands before dinner, it was like, turn on the tap, slap, slap, turn off the tap, and then off to the table. No, 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 no. We've learned during this, this pandemic, they tell you to, to keep your hands under how long, and you're to do this for like ages. Yeah, like over and over. Like, we don't know. I, I, I honestly didn't know how long you were supposed to wash with soap until this pandemic. <laughs> Granted, I did do better than as a child. No, no, no. The, the labor is not a rushed moment. When you come to the Word, let the Word wash you. As you see yourself, don't go away uncleansed. Let the Word wash you. As you begin to read the Word, ask God, show me, Lord, what wicked way is going on. What in my heart? Where am I missing it? Where's my attitude? And He'll show you. He'll show you. But take your time. Don't rush it. Don't rush it. You yield here to the Word. Now, today, let's go to the holy place. Let's go to the next one. We've stopped salvation, forgiveness, yieldedness. Now let's go to the next place. And the next place I want to take you to is in the holy place. It's the tent. You go into the tent. By the way, most people are content. Many Christians, I'm just going to say this, are content to stay in the outer court. There's, they're content just to, you know, moments of forgiveness, a little bit of reading the word. I'm a child of God. But God beckons you, come into the holy place. That's why there's multiple steps. Come on in. Come on in. I'm going to say not everybody comes in. I don't even know if the majority come in. But I welcome and I, it's, it's, he beckons, come, come in. Come into the holy place. Here's what you're going to find. The first thing you will come into the holy place. You come in and on the right will be a table. It's called the table of showbread. Now, the table of showbread, when you come in here, Leviticus chapter 24, verse 5 and 6 talk about this. God gives a lot of definition about what is to take place here. Leviticus 24, 5. Take the finest flour and bake 12 loaves of bread. Much more is said. The fourth step is knowledge. Salvation, forgiveness, yield, yieldedness, knowledge. Partake of the bread. Showbread. Exodus 25, 30 makes reference to the bread as the bread of his presence. The term showbread, the word show, S-H-E-W, showbread literally means of the face. Means of the face. So it refers to the fact that the bread was laid out in the presence or before the face of God. He was constantly watching. He was watching before the face of God, the bread. Here, this particular table had two bars or handles. This is how the priest would move it from place to place. And there were 12 loaves. And these 12 loaves on the table spoke that God was saying, I'll provide for you. 12 loaves, how many tribes were there? 12 tribes. I'll provide for all of you. Not one will go away without being fed. I will feed you to your fullness. Praise God. He doesn't leave us hungry. He doesn't leave us wanting. If you're wanting, it's not because it's, it's on God's end. He says, come and eat of me. Jesus would refer to himself as the I am the bread of life. Eat of me, he said. You remember when they were at the Last Supper? What did he do? He took the bread and he said something very strange. Eat of me. This is 
my body. My body. And the disciples, what does that mean? Well, you just go back. This was a representation. He would provide for you. Eat. And Jesus, they made the reference, I am the bread. No longer is the bread symbolic of something. I am the fulfillment of the symbol. Table represents the word of God. The 12 loaves were to be on the table at all times. The Bible provides us with the spiritual knowledge to know God's will. What is your will for your life? What is the purpose for your life? You want to know what you're to do? God will show you. As you seek his word, even in regard to employment, in regard to marriage, in regard to uh, relationships with your children, in regard to your relationships with other people, it's not going to give you a one-liner to tell you the name of the person you're going to marry. But as you dig into the Word, as you seek His knowledge, you will learn what He's trying to show you. You will grow in knowing. He wants you to know Him. And as you dig in, you will learn in the Word. God will show you what He wants you to do. This is the place where He begins to mold your mind, your intellect. Remember we talked the Holy place represents your soul. Soul represents the three things of your soul, your mind, your will, and your emotions. There's three items in this holy place. We come, first of all, your mind in knowledge is being built up by the Word of God. Dwell on that. Grow on that. This is not like once a week, not when you come to church and the pastor tells you to turn to Exodus 29. It is an everyday place where you grow in the Word. Don't read it, close the book, and do nothing more about it. I call out that when you read it, we're going to talk about what this does, but when you read it, there's more to it than reading it. It needs to be eaten. It needs to go inside. Psalms 19, doesn't it say, His word is like honey, the honeycomb. His word is like honey, the honeycomb. Jesus describes himself as the bread of life, and in him you lack nothing. God gave Moses seven, or six points of instructions concerning the showbread. Let me quickly talk about these because they make reference. First of all, when it comes to the showbread, in making the bread, they were to use finely ground flour. When you sense the Holy Spirit grinding your will, submit to it. When you begin to go to the place of knowledge, he will begin to grind on your will. It's going to be contrary to what you want. Expect it. Secondly, the flour was to be molded into loaves. It was taken by the baker and molded into proper form. And God does this to our will. Not only is there a grinding, a submitting of our ways, but there is a molding of our ways. And we come to him each morning as they would and submit our wills to him, allowing the hands of God to fashion and mold me into how he wants me. It's no different than the picture to Jeremiah where the potter takes the clay and molds it. So the baker takes... And he molds this into loaves. Thirdly, it was to be put into fire. God gave instructions, put it in the fire. You know, fire brings out the impurities and purifies. He purifies our will. Fourthly, after the bread is baked, it was to be put on the table before the Lord. And there was a precise order. They didn't just throw it on the table. They just didn't heap it upon one another. There was an, God told the order. There was an exact order. Two rows, six loaves in each row. In other words, this is where you and I need to submit to the order of him. I call it, I need to align my will with his will, not him with mine. 
So many times we're asking God to do our will, but we need to stop and say, God, what's your will? Show me your will. Remember, we're at the bread of knowledge. As we read, he reveals his will. Now I line up to that will. I don't try to make my will. I line up to his will. That's why I tend to be against just pulling scriptures out and trying to find our pet scriptures. Let's read entire books of the Bible together in their context. And as you do, you will discover his will in the book instead of trying to pull out little pieces apart and making it your will and expecting him to align to us. It doesn't work that way. So under the knowledge, there is a place where there's a precise order of these bits of bread. Fifthly, the bread was to be covered with frankincense. Frankincense is a spice that in Scripture stands for worship. Our wills are to come to God, not in begrudging obedience. I don't come to meet with him because I have to. May we delight ourselves in worship to him. How many times there's a, oh, do I have to? Oh, I've got to. When even coming to his word and opening up the word, whether morning, evening, or middle of the day, oh, I've got to do this. Instead of, oh, Lord, I delight to do your will, oh, Lord. Your delight is in my heart. In this place, frankincense, it's a place where we delight to worship him. Frankincense, a smell. We delight. And finally, the bread had to be cooked fresh and put on the table fresh. And just as the bread was cooked fresh, fresh submission. Fresh submission. You know, if we only ever ate once a week, we'd be pretty, we'd be an unhealthy bunch of people. Sometimes that's the way believers are, going from Sunday to Sunday. And, or hit and miss. A little bit here, a little bit there. If that was our food, that was going into our stomachs, we would not be healthy people. There's the definite picture here that every day, God help me to be daily in the place of knowing you. Romans 12, 2 says, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world. That means this world has a pattern. But be transformed. We, gotta, we come out of the pattern of this world by the renewing of our mind. Where's the battle won? The battle's won between your ears. It's in the renewing of your mind, and it starts in the place of knowledge. The renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve. Until then, you won't be able to. What God's will is, is good, pleasing, perfect. There's good, but there's better, and there's the best. You will know him. You will know him. The place of knowledge. Now let's go to the next one because knowledge in itself is not enough. Go straight across to the other side of the holy place and you come to the candlesticks. I want to talk about the fifth step is candlesticks of wisdom. Now follow with me. We've come through the gate of salvation to the brazen altar of forgiveness, to the washing of the word of yieldedness. I yield to it. Now I have knowledge of God's word. I, I'm growing in knowledge. We need to teach our children, teach our youth, teach ourselves. Grow in knowledge. But now I go over to the candlesticks. The candlesticks are seven branches coming of candlesticks, and it's wisdom. I need wisdom on how to apply the knowledge. Otherwise, the knowledge is dangerous. No more dangerous than to you. I need wisdom on what to do. So we move on to the candlesticks. Remember, we are inside a tent within a tent. In this tent of the holy place, the only light in there is the candlesticks. Now, in the outer court, it was lit by the sun. 
But on the inner courts, the entirety is lit by the candles. The candles are made out of pure gold. It is suggested they weighed about 100 pounds. So if you're going to steal that chunk of gold, you're going to have quite a lug to get it out of there. 100 pounds worth, seven of them. And the lamps going up depict the light. And I was thinking, you know, we have this uh, emphasis we've been doing for a year and a half, be a light, be a light. And only by the power of the Holy Spirit can we be a light. The candles, seven of them going up, and they were fed the fire on the candles, the seven sticks. The fire was fed by oil. And the oil, every word in Scripture, oil represents His Holy Spirit. His Holy Spirit lights the fire. When I receive knowledge of God's Word, I need the Holy Spirit to illuminate it to me. When I read God's Word and I'm asking God, show me and speak to me and open my heart, Holy Spirit, come and reveal your way. Unless you illuminate it, I won't understand it well. Holy Spirit, reveal it to me. John 9, 5, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. God is meant to be our source. We will move from the place of the outer court where the sun lit now to the place where now God's our primary source. No longer do we seek the source of our fulfillment and direction from the ways of the world. Remember, we're transformed from the pattern of the world into the pattern of our Lord. We are being transformed. People think, well, after salvation, I'm just instantly it. Well, let me tell you, you're not. There's a lot of world in all of us. It's a progression. As we move into that place, as we grow in Him, He will begin to make us more into his image. And in that place, he reveals the things, he illuminates them to our hearts and to our lives. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, 14, the natural man cannot receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. We can't know it. We can't know it. But the believer inside the tabernacle, which is Christ, is to walk in the light even as he is in the light. Seven sticks. Did you notice in the picture of the seven sticks here that the, there's a middle one and then three on each side come off of the middle one? The six are not independent. The six sticks are dependent on the central stick. We come back to John 15, 5. Jesus says, I am the vine, you're the branches. From the vine, we have light. We do not draw the source otherwise. It's through Christ Jesus comes the light, through him. Here we need to be guided by his spirit. Again, we come back to Romans 12, 2. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Why? Because our carnal minds can't comprehend God's plans for us. So here at the stand of wisdom, we are seeking his direction. We need to know his ways because our ways are not his ways. So we are desiring, Spirit of God, show me your ways. And as we press in and allow Holy Spirit to fill us and to renew us and renew our mind, we begin to understand his ways instead of just our ways. 1 Corinthians 2.9 no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. 
Now the word here where it says, no eye has seen nor ear has heard, no mind has conceived. The word mind, no mind, that word is actually the word, it's, it's a Greek word, comes from cardia. Meaning, you've heard the expression cardiovascular. The heart pump. Cardia. It's saying here, no heart's reasoning can conceive. Your ability to reason, to see, to behold, you can't behold God. He's beyond. You won't grasp it. That's why many close the Bible and go away frustrated. That's why God to so many people is just a religion. No, 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 no. He's personal. He invites those who will, and not everybody will. He invites those who will, come in. And I will show you me. But it's not a given. You must pursue him. You must follow the steps. They head to with the tabernacle, head to with the temple, and we have to today. He will reveal himself by his spirit. My heart's reasoning will not understand him. He is God, I'm not. I can't, I can't fathom it. My eyes cannot see him. My ears cannot hear him. My mind cannot fathom him. Isn't that true? My physical body cannot do this. How do we determine God's mind? 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 10. God has revealed it to us by his spirit. That's how we do it. Only through his spirit. Note the word has. God has revealed it. Has means past tense. These good things were first revealed by the word of God, the place of knowledge. They were started there, but now the full revelation comes by his spirit, the place of wisdom. Now he illuminates understanding. And until you realize the Holy Spirit is in you waiting to let you know all that God has for you, we miss out. Again, I come back to that scripture, 1 Corinthians 2, verse 14. The man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. We must seek wisdom. And once we have the place of knowledge and wisdom where it's applied, now we're ready to go to the third furniture, in the holy place, the altar of incense. It's the place of understanding. Salvation, forgiveness, yieldedness, knowledge, wisdom, understanding. Now I understand. Now I comprehend. Now I behold you. Now I get it. Understanding. Occupying the central position there in the holy place between the showbread and candlestick is the altar of incense. It stood directly in front of the veil that separated our sin, sinful mankind, from the holiness of God. Worship leads us directly before a holy God. The priest was to daily go, and what happened here? The priest was to go back to the brazen altar of forgiveness. He was to take a bucket. He was to take hot live coals from the front altar and carefully bring it into the holy place. And it fired the altar of incense. The coals from the altar of incense came from the place of sacrifice. See the significance in that? The coals from the place of worship came from the place of sacrifice. We talked earlier Based on your level of sacrifice will be the level you experience his glory. 
And when you come to this here altar, the fire of the frankincense, the fire of the incense is the fire of the sacrifice. It's not a fresh fire. It's not a different fire. It's that fire. That's the fire. It's the fire of service that he has provided for us. Psalms 141 verse 2, David said, May my prayer be set before you like incense. David saw this regularly. May my prayer. Incense, when it's spoken of in scriptures, frequently refers to prayer slash worship. It's both prayer and worship. And this altar was to be continually fired up. Don't let the coals go down. Not at nighttime, not in daytime, not in... Always, always keep the coals burning hot on this altar. Keep the praise rising before him. Keep the praise rising before him. Good word there, isn't it? Keep the praise rising before him. It's so important here at this altar of incense, continually, 24-7. It's so important that we pray with and for others as well. We are to constantly be in prayer for one another. The crown at the top of the altar of incense symbolizes the crown of our self-control. That we want to, we are in control of our own emotions. Our emotions are not in control of us. This is where our understanding, we submit our emotions, the third part of the soul, to him. And God gave Moses the formula for the incense. I found this interesting. The formula for the incense on this altar was compounded from four different rare spices. A quick search on that, I discovered each spice was extremely costly. It wasn't just any spice. The four spices were the most precious and costly spices. And, I, and it hit me. I began to realize worship costs you everything. Not just a moment here and a moment there. Worship is absolutely costly. And I'm going to suggest the two greatest commodities that will cost you today is your time. Cost you your time. If it's only a little bit here, if it's at the end of the day, you know, I'm going to give God the end of the day and I fall asleep. One of the things, when I came to realize this a number of years ago, when I saw this personally, when I saw this, I refused to during the time of my Bible reading to allow myself to fall asleep. And I refuse to allow myself to fall asleep when I pray. And that can be really hard sometimes, especially if you're wearing masks. You know, it's really hard to not get tired and fall asleep. I refuse to do that. If I'm going to fall asleep, I'm going to fall asleep in front of the television. If I'm going to fall asleep, I'm going to fall asleep with a book in my lap. If I'm going to fall asleep, it's going to be for something else. But listen here. I personally, and, and it's not to be any, any charade, I chosen, I will not fall asleep before you, Lord. I've chosen to do that. So when I open up your word, if I get sleepy, I'll walk and read. I won't fall asleep. Why? It's too costly. I got to give them the best of me, not the worst of me. So I try to find the best time of your day. Are you a morning person? Are you an evening person? What time? When's your best? The worship costs something. David got a hold of that and says, I won't worship something that doesn't cost me something. It costs you something significant. And it costs you discipline to do it. To do it. Just not hit and miss. Oh, I just you know, forgot for a week. To do it. It requires preparation. The priest would crush the spices into powder and blend them perfectly together. The word crush is the word contrition. 
It's a contriter, a machine that uses to crush. Contrition. That's what happens in worship. For our worship to come before the Lord, it must be a broken and contrite heart, not a heart puffed up. In brokenness I come before Him. This is where my heart is no longer filled with pride, but filled with humility before God. I come before you, O God. You are great. I humbly come as your servant. It's that picture. And out of a broken heart, we can go to Him. He says, come to me in your brokenness. My grace is near to those who are broken. He welcomes the brokenness. Where else should we go if we're broken but to him? And that's why it's so important that we enter. Remember we talked of the three phases. We start thanksgiving, praise, and worship. In thanksgiving, I remember what he has done. Then I move to praise and I exalt him for who he is. So that in the place of worship, in my brokenness, I don't crash. Because if I have not thanked him and remembered what he's done, and if I haven't seen how great he is, if, he, if I become broken, there's nothing left to give. I'm undone. But if I've come through the place of thanksgiving and through the place of praise, now in my brokenness, I know he is with me. And he is my strength. Thus said, the joy of the Lord is my strength. That's where it comes from. The joy of the Lord is my strength. Now I'm strong because in my brokenness I am made strong. We all worship something. Every person, I don't know between, what are we, seven to eight billion people on this earth? Every person of age worships something. All of us. You know what you worship by how you give your time, energy, and finances. And that's what you that's your allegiance. You would they wouldn't call it worship. Before Christ, I worshiped, I worshiped myself. I worshiped, okay? People worship their job, worship uh, relationships, they worship their home, worship money, making money, right? They gave their time, their energy, their effort to that. Where you give your time, energy, effort is what you worship. We all worship. We all worship something. Materialism, boats, cars, entertainment. Wherever you spend the bulk of your time is what you worship. Here you come to this altar. It's a place of worship Him. And the fire is to be kept burning. It's to be kept burning. Don't let the coals go out. You know, one of the things, a challenge, is beware of a tired body. Beware of coming unprepared to the place of worship. I purpose to, on Saturday night, make sure I don't do something that tires me so much out for Sunday. I come not prepared. Many maybe don't come Sunday because they're too tired. I refuse to do that. You see, I experience God. I want to get into the holy place. That's important to me. And so, therefore, I come prepared. And I'm not going to present a, a body that's going to go to sleep, a body that's tired, a body that's going to come in late. I'm not going to do that. I refuse to do that. I will give them the best. Because it means something. Because there, I will experience His glory. If I refuse to do that and do it my way, I don't experience it. I go out unchanged. And to me, I don't, know, I don't even think I'd be a Christian if that's all it ever was. It's because I do experience Him. That gives me life day by day. So many times our bodies are so tired. Bibles are unopened. We come before Him prayerlessly. If you want to be and experience God's Shekinah glory and presence, 
bring fresh fire to the altar. Let the fire burn hot. Let the fire burn bright. And now, and now, you're ready to go into the Holy of Holies. By invitation, he says, come. By invitation, come and meet with me. The Holy of Holies. I, you know, the tabernacle at first probably seemed very confusing. I hope it isn't now. I've tried to make this, this very detailed, like there's chapters upon chapters of this in the Bible. I remember the first time, I don't know about you, first time I went into Ikea, um, and it got all the way around to the warehouse. And when I got to the warehouse, you know, massive, and we had to find something. And, and we, like, Gloria and I, I couldn't find, so we had to find somebody, a worker, showed them our number, and then they walked, and we followed, and they went down an aisle and across another one, and went down another, and went right to the box. And I realized what looked to me to be chaos was actually very orderly. I want to suggest to you what might have appeared in the tabernacle to be something chaos is really not chaos. It is seven steps of order. Wonderful, marvelous steps of order into where I have an encounter with God. And we come before the Ark of the Covenant, also spoken of the Ark of Testimony. There were three arcs in the Old Testament. There was the Ark of Noah, the Ark of Moses, and the Ark of the Covenant. Three arcs. The Ark of Noah, God gave directions, and he and his family, eight of them, went into the Ark and were shut in by God, shut in with God. He protected the Ark of Moses. He was a baby. And there was judgment all over. As there was judgment with the ark of Noah, God shut the men and was with them. So there was judgment. Judgment upon every male child in the time of Moses. So God gave directions about the ark. It was called an ark, a little ark, a little basket. Called an ark. And God protected him and shut himself in to protect Moses in that ark. Now the third ark. It's called the ark of the covenant. The ark of the covenant was also an ark of judgment. For inside the ark were ten commandments, but they were broken. They were broken. And on top of the ark were two cherubim leaning inward. And the judgment of God was upon every person. For all have sinned, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. The wages, judgment upon every single person. There was judgment. The cherubim, interesting, the cherubim are the two angels. The cherubim are the same spoken of in Ezekiel chapter 28, verse 14. It speaks of Lucifer before he fell from heaven. He was of the angelic order of cherubim. Cherubim. He understands what it is when mankind broke the law. We were separated from God. No longer could we have access into the presence of God. Our own sins condemned us. And he is the toter of all our sins. You will not be. Shame on you. You are guilty. You are condemned. You are condemned. He is the one. Judgment, judgment, judgment. The law has been broken. The law has been broken. But between the broken law and judgment is called a mercy seat. Hallelujah. Made of gold. The mercy seat. It's called the mercy seat. The mercy seat. What happens once a year on the Day of Atonement? The word atonement means at one with God. That which brings us back to the Father. On that day, 
the priest would come in and do something. Only the high priest, none of the other priests, one high priest, he gets one shot at this. And custom, Jewish custom tells us that when he would go into the Holy of Holies, I guess there might have been times that he didn't follow the seven steps and he didn't come back out. And so apparently, according to Jewish custom, they would put bells on his robe and tie a rope on his ankle because you can't go in and get them. You would die too. So they actually had a rope, according to Jewish custom, that if, if the bells stop ringing and he doesn't come out, you know, next, you know, you don't want to be next. Apparently that's custom. So what happened on the day of atonement? It's really cool. It's really cool. The high priest will go. He doesn't take the coals. The coals are already lit at the altar of incense. What he does is he takes the blood in the basin, the blood that has been shed. And very carefully, he carries that blood. It doesn't touch the ground. He carries that blood through the steps. He comes to the altar of incense, the place of worship. But he has to get inside on the Day of Atonement, once a year. How do you think he gets inside? There's no zipper. He can't go into the side. There's no sides. It goes right to the wall. He has to go underneath. He goes in by way of his knees into the Holy of Holies, never letting this basin touch the ground, filled with blood from an innocent animal. He goes into the Holy of Holies. The Bible talks about the Old Testament. I'm not taking the time to read it. He goes in under on his knees to the mercy seat. And there it says he sprinkles the blood seven times. The picture, though, is not just a squirt from like a bottle. It's he covers the mercy seat in the seven sprinklings. He covers the mercy seat with the blood that was sacrificed. What a picture we have. He covers and then get out of there. Back out, back out, and leave. And when he has left the gate beautiful, they stand, people stand, and the glory will come upon the place. And the sacrifice was accepted. What a glory. And one more year, meant one more year, you don't have to do that for one more year. Whew, one more year. All it did was cover it. All it did was cover it. Now let me tell you what happened. Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 9 verse 12 speaks of Christ. He did not enter by means of blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once and for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. Jesus. What a beautiful picture here. I like this right here. This picture here of Jesus. When Jesus gave his life. Now remember we just talked about what happened. The priest had to go into the blood and he, spray, and he sprinkled it on the, on the mercy seat. And it satisfied the judgment. No longer are our sins held. It satisfied the judgment. Because of the innocent slain, we had access back to God. That's what they did back then. Now, us, it's different today. Jesus went. And Jesus, again, gave himself as the perfect sacrifice. His blood was shed. The story, if you read the story, and I invite you, John chapter 20, verse 17. John 20, 17. The beloved disciple gives a glimpse of what took place. Jesus had died on the cross. His blood had been shed. We know that the earth shook. The Bible says in the temple, the veil was torn by God. It says from the top to the bottom. God just, no longer do you need this anymore. Praise God. No longer do you need this anymore. No longer is there a separation. You come into my presence. We just finished reading it. Jesus fulfilled the eternal purpose. 
You don't have to do this every year. You don't have to do it every time you come into the, into the sanctuary on, on a Sunday. You don't have to keep doing this. Jesus did it once and for all 2,000 years ago. He paid the full price. It doesn't have to keep being done. No more animals have to be sacrificed. I'm really happy about that. No longer all these things taking place. Jesus did it. He satisfied it because he was the answer to sin's problems. He took upon him the sin. And when Jesus on Easter... When Jesus rose from the dead, we have the story in John 20. When Jesus, and John tells something the other gospel writers didn't put in, but John wanted to make sure we got this. He's the beloved disciple. John was writing this. When Jesus rose from the dead, the stone was rolled back, and it was on the early morning. Remember when the Marys came, Mary Magdalene, Mary, who had been set free, delivered of demons, she came, and, to, and the others came to meet with Jesus, and the tomb was empty. And they were weeping. And Jesus was there. And you read of it. And they, when they saw Jesus and they recognized Jesus, they wanted to go and hug him and kiss him and smother him. They were so excited. And Jesus, he did something very unusual, very unlike Jesus. John 20, 17. I'm going to read it. Jesus said, do not hold on to me. He didn't want them to touch him. <laughs> For I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God, the same God. I'm ascending. Now, Jesus loves to be touched. Just a few days later, when he was with his disciples, he actually told them, touch my hand, touch my side. He wanted to be touched, but he couldn't be touched right here because John was trying to tell us that he was in the in-between. He was like the priest who had gone in, and it's a sacred moment the blood had been spilled, but it had to be offered to our Father. And Jesus said, Mary, whoa, 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 whoa. I got to go to it. I got to go to the Father. I got to present myself for the sake of all mankind. What a beautiful picture John put in there. That he presented himself as the perfect sacrifice lamb of God for us. Praise God. Isn't it worth it going the seven steps into the presence of God to get to that place? where we behold him in his glory. Doesn't something stir within you? Thanks for listening to the Aurora Cornerstone podcast. Remember to subscribe. For more information about our church and our ministries, visit auroracornerstone.ca